0: The Arthropod. The Arthropod is the home for the wonderful, weird, wacky world of insects. Hosted by Jonathan Larson, Jody Green, and Michael Scavarla. We ready? Yes.
1: And five, four, three, two. Welcome back to Arthropod, your entomology podcast. I am but one of your hosts for today, Jonathan Larson of the University of Kentucky. I'm another
0: one of your hosts. I'm Jody Green from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And I'm the last host today, uh, Michael Skavarla with Penn State University. And we have a special guest today. Special guest, could you introduce yourself? Hello,
2: I am Jesse Evans, and I am a graduating master's student in entomology at Penn State University.
0: Jesse, thank you for coming on today. I've kind of teased your research in some past episodes because I think it's cool, and we get tick questions and, and stuff, so I wanted to bring you on so the teasing in previous episodes was not for naught. So we're going to talk about your research today. So can you just give us a brief, like a, a ten thousand foot overview of what you did and what the purpose of that was, and then we can get into like the nitty gritty of what you actually did.
2: Yeah. So my research was in how prescribed burns in Pennsylvania forests affect tick host interactions, and so. For the past century or so, we've been in this era of sort of fire suppression where um, forest fires and prescribed burns have sort of been suppressed and not used across the landscape. More recently, we've discovered the various benefits of prescribed burns and forest fires. And so they've been utilized more and more by land managers, and they've been suggested as a tool for landscape-wide. Tick management and tick-borne pathogen reduction, which is really important because we don't really have a lot of landscape-wide tools for tick management. And so my research was looking into how those prescribed burns affect the paramysis mice that res- that act as reservoir hosts for a lot of those pathogens, and how the ticks feed on them because that matters as much as the reduction in the in the tick populations across the landscape which prescribed burns have already been shown to do they reduce the questing ticks but the on-host interactions matter for pathogen risk so i did some trapping with mice in uh, pennsylvania forests and looked at the ticks on there see how they how they interact
1: I'm very intrigued by this. Uh, I've had a couple of people call me so far this year already. Uh, In Kentucky, we've had a lot of angry tick sufferers. And two of the people specifically, they had large acreages, and they wanted me to tell them how to do a prescribed burn to reduce tick populations on their land, something I am not comfortable doing as an entomologist, per se, uh, nor endorsing, I guess. Uh, maybe I'll feel differently after today. But uh, in, in the course of your research, can you talk a little bit more about this history of fire suppression? I mean, why, did we, why were we in this uh, fire bad kind of mode for the last 100 years rather than embracing this natural cycle? So,
2: I mean, at the surface level, looking at a fire, it just destroys a forest. Right. Well, it doesn't destroy a forest, but it destroys a lot of the forest. Okay. Um, and just seeing that, I think it's understandable to see why people would think that would be a bad thing. There's less habitat. It destroys uh, shelters for animals. It uh, sort of remixes the like arthropod community and all of that so there's a lot of changes that happen post forest fire that i think a lot of people could see pretty easily and said because this is changing the forest this is a bad thing but i think more recently we've looked at how is it changing the forest and what has happened during this era of fire suppression and what we found is that a lot of the fire suppression has sort of degraded habitats that would be Beneficial for a lot of species, so grouse, uh, turkey, a lot of the game species in Pennsylvania, like uh, white white-tailed deer and elk, like those early burn forests because they have a lot of fresh browse. So we've seen that this fire suppression has actually degraded habitat, and on top of that, there's also the pitch pine, a lot of oaks that require that fire to reproduce, to like propagate and whatnot so i think we've been in that fire suppression era for a long time just because we didn't i i don't want to say we missed the forest for the trees um (laughs) and what we saw was that there is this change and now what we know is that that change can be good can be bad has a lot of different nuances to it
0: so Smokey the Bear was wrong. We shouldn't <laughs> just put out all forest fires.
2: We should. Um, yes. I think now he says only you can prevent wildfires, which new new phrasing I think is more technically correct. But
0: Like we don't want them just burning out of control. That's why we yeah. do these prescribed burns where they're under control and they burn how we want.
2: Yes, exactly. We don't want New York City to turn red.
3: where are these forests are they in pennsylvania
2: yes so all of the forests that i looked at for my research were in center county and the agencies in pennsylvania that primarily do prescribed burns are dcnr and the pennsylvania game commission and so i was looking at the prescribed burns by the Pennsylvania Game Commission so that's only on game lands in Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania we have a lot of state lands that can be used by the public which is great, but a lot of those are game lands where people can hunt and are managed by the game commission. So all of my forests were pretty much along one ridge line in Center County in technically four different game lands but the the two are separated just by a road so I consider them one game land for my research.
3: So do they have surveys of the wildlife that is like that was present before? They the
2: not really. Um the one thing that the game commission hasn't started doing very well yet, I think they're getting into it is looking at the like how that burn works there are a lot of different features of a burn as well that like make each prescribed burn a little bit different they can have they can be more aggressive sort of eat up more fuel um get rid of a lot of woody debris or they could be a quick forest fire sort of surface level just pass over get a lot of that brush out of there but not like leave a lot of that leaf litter surface debris stuff like that and a a lot of standing trees as well so the pennsylvania game commission doesn't take any data on how the burn burned which kind of actually made it a little bit difficult for my research to compare the different fires because I have no no idea how the fire burned. But yeah so the, the game commission hasn't really taken an active role in looking at those differences and the effects of those prescribed burns yet. What they do do is look at the habitat that sort of recolonizes and they have metrics of like all the different types of forests on the lands that they manage so whether it's like an oak heath forest or a mixed hardwood forest and stuff like that and what they'll do is they'll do the burn hope like managing for a certain habitat type and they know what kinds of species prefer those habitat types
0: In thinking about it from who's doing the burns it's the Pennsylvania Game Commission. So they are looking to propagate more lands for people to hunt on preferred game species, like you mentioned, deer and turkey and elk and that kind of thing. So they're they're burning with a purpose to make those species more abundant in those areas. Exactly.
2: They're pretty much single focused on those game species. I mean, they they manage all of the wildlife in Pennsylvania, but they're what they what they worry about with the prescribed burns is the those game species.
0: So, then with the burns that you're working in, how did you, I guess, liaison with the game commission? Did you like go out and tell them, like, I want you to burn here? And then they did it. Or like, are you coming in, like, they're burning, doing whatever they're doing, and you're coming in after the fact, using what they've kind of left you?
2: God, I wish I could tell them where to burn and just do it that way. But no they there is a lot that goes into planning a burn they have to worry about wildlife lockouts so different when the different wildlife that are present in that habitat when they're reproducing and sort of propagating and stuff like that they can't burn during those times right so if there's some sort of species that they're trying to protect they can't burn during those times so they have these lockout periods so they can only burn within like a 3 month period and then within that 3 month period they have to worry about the weather for the next week because if it's too dry the forest or the prescribed burn might spread and cause a wildfire if it's too windy again might spread cause a wildfire and then they also have to worry about personnel so they need all the personnel out there to be doing the burn so when they when they schedule a burn it's within a couple days notice and they don't really know which where they're going to go beforehand. So they look at weather across the state obviously and they they say I'm going to we can go here because the weather's like this. And so yeah, there was no way to chase that. I really wanted to do before and after, but I could have looked at six to six different plots across the game lands and those plots never got burned that year. And in the course of a masters, I don't really have another year to to do that. So I had to do sort of an observational study. And so what I did was I went to burns that had already happened within the past three years. I'm trying to remember because it was 2021. So yeah, three years. Um so I had 2019 burns, 2020 burns, and then I had 2022 20, burns. That's what it was. Um there 2021 didn't really happen much because of COVID. So then I I paired those with reference plots, so similar starting habitat within a similar area, but far enough away that there are no paramiscus mice and no none of the white-footed mice that I was looking at spreading to those different reference plots, and then I just compared those. So I had comparisons across reference plots versus burn plots, and then comparisons across that like time series. So I compared recent burns 2022, so that would have been the year, the summer I, they would have been burned the spring before the summer when I started investigating. And then I compared those to the older burns, the 2020,
1: 2019 burns. Uh, I was just kind of curious, you're talking about all this, you're going in, uh, surveying and stuff. This might be a question that really intrigues Jody. She's a she's a mouse catcher extraordinaire. Uh, has some history doing it. How are you surveying for the mice? Uh, or is this a trap kind of situation? You got glue boards out? You just pied piper in them, or, or what's the deal? <laughs> um,
2: we did a trap grid in each plot of thirty traps, um, thirty Sherman live traps. Ah and we sampled for three nights twice during the summer so once in june and once in august
1: okay was the live trap thing uh something that the the irb is that the internal review board is that what i'm thinking of did they demand that they have to be alive or was that just part of your your plan from the beginning
2: yeah the the iacook is uh, iacook thank you yeah they I wanted to do a mark recapture to see if there was any sort of change in that community of mice across the different plots. And so, yeah, live capture was the best way to do that because then I could tag them, release them, and see what comes back.
3: <clears throat> what did you use for bait?
2: We used my advisor, Erica MacTinger's very special bait formula, which was ba- it's basically peanut butter, paraffin wax, and
1: are you you sure you can tell us this it's published oh okay okay (laughs) she has a paper about it so okay it sounded like a colonel sanders kind of (laughs) level secret recipe so (laughs) no i'm not going to tell you the secret
2: ingredient that we use but (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah it's just paraffin wax and peanut butter basically and And then we put and a little bit of love (laughs) um a little bit of burnt scraps too because we usually cook it a little too long and we also include cotton so that they can stay warm and dry, and a piece of potato or apple. so they have hydration.
1: So nice. That's <laughs> not what Jody does.
2: There's there, there have been times when the hydration has gotten a little little too hydrated, a little too mushy. So it's it's not the best situation, but some some of the mice like it, they always return.
3: So then, when do you, do you like when you catch the mice? Do you end up releasing them after, or do you keep them?
2: We <laughs> we did not uh, keep any specimens. All the ones that survived the trapping period got released uh, back into their plot, and then, like I said, we went back and tried to see if we could capture them again to see yeah what that population looked like.
3: So then, were they tagged? After? they were tagged we used, oh okay
2: uh stulting your tags
3: okay and you did recapture like they really liked that bait that's how you knew like hey we got repeat customers yeah they like i mean
2: obviously some of them don't like being trapped because they get a tag in their ear but yeah there are definitely some trap happy mice the food's great the accommodations didn't work yeah <laughs> uh... did, you,
3: did you catch other things other than mice in those traps
2: uh, yeah uh so we got a few shrews um uh we didn't identify the species we just released them when we catch them um and i think we might have caught a chipmunk or two um again we just yeah. released them um but almost all of what we've caught were paramiscus mice it's really hard to to i field id paramiscus leucopus compared to paramiscus maniculatus so we just call them paramiscus species, but based on like past trapping, we've set up a colony in our lab of the some of the mice that we've captured in the field. They're probably all paramiscus leucopus.
1: Now, when you have these mice in hand, are you also doing a tick check on them? Are you seeing what kind of parasite load they have?
2: Yeah, so that was that sort of the uh, idea from the of the study was we, did a tick check we removed at least 10 ticks or up to 10 ticks i should say um <clears throat> and stored them in ethanol to do sort of pathogen analysis see what pathogens were prevalent or present in those ticks um and then we once we had counted and removed the ticks we returned them back to the forest if we recaptured them in that trapping period of course we didn't like I didn't use that in my data analysis because they had been they had had ticks removed from them but if i some of the mice we then again trapped later in the second trapping session in august that's three months away ticks will reattach within that period so we did i did count those as sort of inaugural captures in my data for that set and then we, other things we got from them, we took tissue samples um, because like Borrelia, uh, we, tissue and blood samples, tissue because Borrelia burgdorferi, the pathogen that causes Lyme disease, is sort of hard to detect in the blood. So we use the tissue to see whether they have that pathogen present within them to know if they're reservoiring it and then blood to look at. I should read all my pathogens. Um, things like Anaplasma phagocytophila, Babesia microti, Powassan virus, others, Borrelia, Miyamotoi, pretty much anyone that you can think of. Rickettsia. Yes.
1: Okay. Here I have them here. Um... No, you t- <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean to make you read it. But...
2: No, no. Erlichia Ur- muris, Ehrlichia chaffeensis. Uh, bourbon virus, heartland virus, things that really aren't that prevalent in our area. Babesia hensley, Babesia microdi, rickettsia rickettsia, and Colorado chick fever virus. So, And rickettsia parkeri. I think we did find uh, some
1: rickettsia parkeri as well. Can I ask, what? what was the most common tick that you were capturing?
2: I'm pretty sure 100% of our ticks were black-legged ticks. Wow. So, yeah. In, in Center County... We technically have other ticks. We have American Dog ticks and uh, and the Lone Star ticks as well. I've never seen them. i been with this lab for, what, four years now as a lab tech before and now as a master student from all of our field stuff, never collected anything but Ixodes, Scapularis.
3: Were they... In what like life stage or are they all life stages that did that depend on the time of year? Okay. Well, so
2: we did two trapping sessions to sort of target those two different the two different life stages that we expected to see on mice, which larvae and nymphs. I think most of what we collected was nymphs. I'm pretty sure we got a few larvae, but I would say the vast majority were nymphs. If I'm remembering correctly, so yeah, we no adults, obviously, and yeah, we were trying to capture those those both of those.
1: I'm I'm still absolutely floored by this uh, complete lack of Lone Star tick or American dog tick. Like that that is astonishing to me. So like when people go outside in Pennsylvania, black legged deer ticks are the only ticks that they fear, or
2: it in parts of Pennsylvania, Lone Star ticks are the like the, what do you call it? Leader, the, the most dominant. The <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I have a friend who did tick research in southeast Pennsylvania, and all she collected was Lone Star ticks. So it really depends on the area, but in our region, the sort of like the Allegheny-Appalachian Mountain region, we've really only seen... Especially, I should say, specifically in Center County, where we do our stuff, we've only seen Exodia scapularis.
3: Did you find that all the ticks or all the mice had ticks or like what percentage of mice had ticks? And if there was a tick on the mouse, if there were usually more than one or just one, or is it all over the board?
2: It's kind of all over the board. Um, (laughs) It's hard
3: to say. There
2: were definitely a lot of mice with no ticks um which oh, made my model zero inflated which made it a lot harder to do um so didn't love that but yeah there were definitely a lot of mice with zero ticks but beyond that i mean some mice come in they have just one tick um or they can have i would say the most often is between 0 and 10 but then like some of them have like 46 ticks on them and some of them have yeah two so it it really varies and I guess it kind of, that's what kind of makes it interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um yeah.
3: Does that deer Mice, the primary host for black legged ticks in those stages or when you before you released any chipmunks or shrews did they have any ticks?
2: I we didn't look at the chipmunks and shrews. um,
3: you just like release. Yeah. sorry about your ticks. <laughs>
2: well, shrews, especially because shrews shrews will die mm-hmm. pretty easily. So when we found a live shrew, that was a special occasion. but yeah, in past studies, we've it's the bycatch we've looked at the ticks on there. and of course, the chipmunks have ticks on them. I'm sure the shrews do too. There are some pathogens that it looks like shrews are the reservoir host for so Mm -hmm. they they also host ticks somebody in my lab i'm gonna plug somebody else's research during her studies we found a lot of voles as well and in processing the voles and the mice we found that there were a lot more ticks on the mice than the voles so there's definitely like species variation But, exodes is like such a generalist tick that it. I think you could find it on any small mammal out in the forest.
3: Good to know. I have not seen a black-legged tick before. Really? In real life, yeah. So I'm the opposite.
2: (laughs) That's wild to me because that's (laughs) all I see.
1: They're kind of a rarity here as well. Yeah, we just had a tick survey project wrap up with a doctoral student and a Pasternak and. Uh, her number one species was lone star ticks by a wide, wide, wide margin, like thousands and thousands of lone star ticks versus hundreds across the state of Exodes or American dog tick.
2: Yeah, I I feel like when you see when you find lone star ticks, you don't really find black-legged ticks. But yeah, in our area, I think it's because of the appalachian the like elevation everything all, all we really find are the black legged ticks
1: which... soon they'll all be replaced by the asian longhorn ticks <laughs> <right>.
2: <laughs> can't wait <laughs> <laughs> but yeah Mike's... i think that's probably why pennsylvania is leading
1: in lyme disease cases also <laughs> it sounds like it it sounds like it mike how far afield are we of where you wanted to go today
0: oh no this is fine um <laughs> just general tiktoks i will bring us kind of back towards your research proper so we've talked about where you're doing the research, the mice and the ticks that you're pulling off of them. And you mentioned that you've got this gradient of years of older burns and burns that happened that year and that fires have been shown to suppress tick populations like immediately after they happen. So with all of that background now, I guess, what, what did you find? Do How are these fires affecting mice and how does that affect... The legged the the ticks.
2: Yeah. Okay. So, I think I should do a little bit of background before I say no more background.
0: <laughs> no, that's fine.
2: Um. So, like I said, Pennsylvania's leading in Lyme disease cases, and like I also said, we mostly found *Ixodes scapularis*, which is one of like the main, the main vector of the pathogen that causes Lyme disease. So, a lot of what we cared about was that Lyme disease life cycle and the way that the pathogen works is it cannot be passed down transovarially so from mother to egg from the tick the tick has to pick it up from feeding on some sort of reservoir host that's capable of passing on that pathogen to the to the, to the tick and that reservoir host or the main one in our region is that peromyscus mouse the you, paramiscus leucopus you, in our area. So that means that for a tick to carry the pathogen that causes Lyme disease, it has to first feed on that paramiscus mouse that has the pathogen living within it. And so like I said, a lot of studies have looked at the, the change in tick populations following a prescribed burn. And the prescribed burn seems to reduce those tick populations within the first year, but they ha- not a lot have compared that to the host response. So, Ixodes is a generalist tick; it feeds on a lot of different hosts. But also, Paramiscus is a very genu- generalist species, and is one of the first to recolonize that that prescribed burn habitat. They can live pretty much anywhere. I'm sure several people have found them in their house, maybe in their office.
0: I
3: think I have one living in my office right
0: now. (laughs) God, I I trap honestly 10 to 20 out of my house a year. These are, it's ridiculous. These are like commonly just called deer mice. Yes, deer mice. Okay, okay. Sorry. I guess I I just wanted to
3: make sure because I don't need our listeners to go start Googling. Well, so I
2: I should be more exact about that. Paramiscus maniculatus is what's technically the deer mouse. What I'm looking at is white-footed mice, but they're basically, they look they look almost exactly the same for somebody who's not researching it. And you get into
3: homes too, though?
2: Yes. Yeah. That they, they look, they're the ones with the white bellies and the brown backs and the long okay. tails.
3: And these are the ones that you can get hantavirus from? Yes. Okay. Good to know. Thank you. Thank you for the background.
2: <laughs> yes, they are, unfortunately. So- yeah, so the the white-footed mice come back into those habitats first, along with the chipmunks. And what that means is that the like primary host living in that pre- prescribed burn habitat is probably a white-footed mouse, which means that that, that pathogen life cycle, if the f- ticks are only feeding on the mice in that habitat, the pathogen life cycle has more opportunity to sort of go move through that it's life cycle. So the ticks aren't feeding cuz the ticks will feed once per life stage. They're not if they're not feeding on like say a vole that might uh might not be as good of a reservoir for that pathogen, they might not pick it up. But if if all they have available to them to feed on is mice, they might be passing on that pathogen more and more. So prescribed burns have been talked about as a method of tick control for disease prevention but if the pathogen is becoming more prevalent in that habitat it's actually not a great method of disease prevention it might produce questing ticks but the ticks that are there are more likely to have the pathogens that we care about so what i was what i wanted to look at for my stuff <laughs> was whether ticks in burned habitats have fewer tick, or whether mice and burned habitats have fewer ticks attached so whether they have a lower tick burden and whether that changes com- uh, over the time series so whether more recent burns have a bigger effect and then on top of that i like i said took the pathogen took samples to look at pathogens to, so i wanted to see What the pathogen prevalence was in those habitats following the burn and again across the time series and what i found was that ticks in burned habitats have or mice in burned habitats i'm sorry have a lower tick burden and that is that effect is increased when we're comparing former burns so 2019 2020 burns went to more recent burns the 2022 burns but the pathogen prevalence is kind of funny where lyme disease the pathogen that causes lyme disease seemed to be more prevalent in those ticks twice as prevalent in those ticks in burned habitats following two years after the burn so those 2019 2020 burns had a Pre- uh, double the prevalence of that Lyme disease pathogen in the ticks and it was somewhat similar in, with babesia microti babesia was more prevalent in uh ticks from burned habitats but not not at a p value of 0.05 or 0.05 so so it seems like the the burn immediately reduces the Tick population decreases that those tick host interactions, but over time, because all they're feeding on are those mice that can reservoir that pathogen, it's increasing the uh pathogen
0: prevalence in that habitat. That seems bad. <laughs> if I'm being real honest. <laughs>
2: it I mean, it depends. <laughs> it depends on how you're using that prescribed burn. So like I said, um, the prescribed burns, not all prescribed burns are made the same. Um, Different ones do different things depending on the severity. And not all prescribed burns are one and done either. So some habitats, if you're maintaining like grouse habitat, you might want to come back in and burn every two years or maybe every year or something like that. And over time, those burns could sort of change that habitat. So change the kind of species that live there, change the tick abundance, change the mouse abundance, all of that. So a lot of what I was looking at was just that like one time burn. Um, but if you're managing that habitat over and over again, it's possible that you could sort of mitigate this response. Cause like I said, it happens in the, in the former burns, the like past burns, the tw- 2019, 2020 burns that I was looking at. So yeah and again it's about your land or your management goals so if you're just managing for game species and you don't care about people walking through your game lands then maybe pa- higher pathogen prevalence is okay
0: <laughs> what were the tick prevalences like in the the older burns so the ticks that are there have a higher pathogen load are there just as many ticks Compared to non-burned areas, like the, does the tick population recover after that first year?
2: Past studies have found that, like tick, the adult tick populations at least are recovering within five years of a burn, and even as soon as one year following a burn. But that that's questing tick population. I was really looking at that on-host tick population. For me, like I said, it's reduced. The tick burdens are reduced in those burned habitats and that's true across all time spans all the time spans i looked at i should say but it's hard for me to say what those tick populations are because my my confidence intervals for my mouse populations are so wide (laughs) so i can i could multiply the number of tick the average number of ticks found on mice by the average number of mice on those habitats. But the average number of mice on those habitats is so such a large range that I, it's really hard to say.
0: I mean, I guess that's one of the problems with doing like a natural experiment like this. You've got all kinds of noise. And especially when you say like, yeah, most of the mice had zero and then some had 40 ticks on them. Like that's just a stupid range. Yep.
3: Is there anything that you would like to see done moving forward with this project? If you're not the one doing it, like what would be the next steps?
2: Yeah. So moving, I would really like to see this done not as an observational study as sort of a treatment applied study to see how those mouse populations respond to that, that burn, because like I can, I can make a lot of assumptions, but in the end, I had, what, 11, 11 sites? Or, yeah, something like that. <laughs> eight sites. I had eight sites that I was looking at in the end. And across, like, i one, one uh, mountain range, but, like, a distance. So it's really hard to say whether these results sort of like carry over whether what like what is really affecting that um i was able to show some sort of differences but yeah i would really like to see it as a treatment applied study and probably with higher effort maybe not just a one-year thing again masters isn't great for a long-term study but Mm -hmm. if i did it again I think I would like to have some sort of higher trap effort over a longer time span and maybe even going back in those fall periods when just looking at the the mouse populations as well because there's just so much seasonality, there's so much happening in that area that it has nothing to do with the burn. So I think that would be a, a good future direction to take it as well as having that data about how the burn burned because i the if woody debris i don't know what the woody debris looked like before the burn i don't know if it didn't change i don't know if it decreased and woody debris can be a pretty significant factor for mouse populations as well as like leaf litter i don't know what the leaf litter looked like before the burn and that has a big impact on the tick populations
1: So going forward, it just seems like it's becoming a a more ticky world, right? People report more and more ticks all the time. People fear ticks at a higher level than they used to. You're the number one Lyme disease state in the country, you said. So with all of that, I mean, do you see this as part of the future of of tick prevention? Uh, Do you think that people will, like my people that I talk to on the phone as an extension entomologist, like will one day we be prescribing burns to them or telling them that this is something that they ought to consider, or is this something that will remain kind of high level and specialized?
2: So I will say that the, the, like you said, it's becoming a tickier world. Those black-legged ticks are moving further North into Canada, taking Lyme disease with them. And the paramescus mice are also moving further North as climate change gets worse and so, yeah, those those ranges are expanding, and it's becoming more and more important to have those management practices or to like figure out what sort of management practices we can have. I think prescribed burns have a place. I would say that, again, the tick populations do seem to be reduced. I had a another master student was working on, A similar project sort of alongside me where she was just looking at the questing tick populations in all the same sites that i was looking at mine and there was a reduction in those questing tick populations across the burns as well so it kind of matters at that like medical level the like human health level which i guess if your management goals are dependent or if your management goals are related to human health, you really need to look at that aspect before we make any sort of definitive uh, statements about how prescribed burns are used. Um, I think they will have their place and they could have their place even outside of Ixodes habitat, so outside of Pennsylvania, but land managers need to understand What's going to happen following that burn, and what they want that burn to do?
1: Hmm. Sounds like you're talking about integrated tick and forest management.
2: <laughs> no, me talking about <laughs> ITM. Yeah, the, I the a, a, everything has a place. Right. So just using every tool we've got, and again, we're in an air a time when a Lyme disease vaccine seems like. Pretty close on the horizon. So, Lyme disease is what I was looking at most for this. But if that was the only significant effect I could find was in that that pathogen, maybe if it's if it's not or if it's not doing anything with those other pathogens, it does have it can be useful because we have this Lyme disease vaccine as well. So maybe we're we're not worried as so much about Lyme disease in the future. I don't know. I live in the present. So,
3: (laughs) (laughs) Jesse, we, we know that these ticks have three hosts and so mice would just be one of them or like between the the larvae and the nymph and the nymph and that adult. how do those burns, you didn't look at how those burns affect larger mammals because they still need to complete the life cycle in order to have, you know, repopulate and have eggs. Um, Is that something that could be a factor in all of this?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, So like I said, that collaborator I was working with, um, she did some camera trap uh, things to see the sort of deer population across those different burn and non-burn plots. And deer are very commonly the adult tick host um, for black-legged ticks. That's why they used to be called deer ticks. So she saw more deer in those burned habitats. Cause, like I said, it reduces that brush, new, new uh understory sort of comes back in, and the deer love that like new browse. So they'll quickly come into those habitats and they'll they're usually s- somewhat small burns. So they'll like move through several of them within. Like maybe a day or a week, um, and as they're doing that, they are pr- probably dropping off those ticks. Mm-hmm. Um, so if the deer are spending more times in the more time in those habitats, then they're repopulating it with the ticks a lot faster. So yeah, those adult life stage hosts also matter to this equation. I was only looking at the small mammals because one, it's a lot easier, and two, because they're what really matters for that pathogen life cycle. They're, the pathogen isn't moving through the deer and back into the ticks in any way, so that's what I was looking at. But yeah, the the adult hosts also matter.
3: So the prescribed burns decrease the tick population initially, but afterwards, a year or two. Mice love it, and the deer love it, and they have higher incidence of Lyme disease, pathogen. Yes. <laughs> okay. So many moving parts. Very interesting.
2: Yeah, there's sort of like, I guess like six like cycles happening at once, which makes it so complicated. But right. yes, um, that's what I saw was that the ticks collected from the hosts in those former burns those old burns had higher pathogen prevalence
3: would it be i don't know how common it is there but integrated tick management where you're treating the deer or treating the mice in the field would that be something that would help that situation yeah i don't want to say yes but i also don't want to say
2: no um so in the areas that I was looking at, like I said, they were game lands. It's There's not a lot of, there are people moving through there a lot and stuff like that, but it's, it's a big range. It's mm-hmm. really hard to treat all of the hosts along that range with something that is going to be effective.
3: Right. So not economical or practical in any sense.
2: Not economical or practical in any sense. Uh, and on top of that, when you're doing anything to treat uh, deer, like any sort of passive thing, you're probably going to be feeding them. And across the East Coast now, you—it's pretty. I think in pretty much every state, you can't feed the deer because of chronic wasting disease, because mm-hmm. that's an easy way for them to spread the disease. So with that, what you'd have to do is sort of catch every deer in that game land and treat it. And that's just not going to happen. Um, in like a home setting, like a- around the house, there are effective tick management uh, strategies that involve treating the hosts. So we actually, in our lab, have looked a lot at these thermocell tick tubes, which are just like, basically, they look like toilet paper rolls stuffed full of cotton that's treated with a nicaricide. And the mice will come gather that cotton to put in their nests. And then every time they're returning to their nest, they're treating themselves for ticks. And we found a, a like pretty drastic reduction in the ticks found on the hosts in areas where these like tick tubes have been implemented. But uh, the current recommendation is put them every 10 meters and to put a grid of tick tubes every ten meters across a like thousand acre game land is not gonna be. It's not gonna help. It's not gonna be economical or easy to do in any way. Not practical. Not practical. Exactly.
0: So you're saying we can't just like helicopter drop vibranium based cotton balls all over the game lands. That would be bad.
2: Yeah. No, we can't do that <laughs> they, they isn't that they did that with like rabies or something didn't they
0: uh, yeah they do it for like predator uh, rat control in tropical islands too
2: yeah um, no that would be that'd be nice if we could but now we cannot
0: john and jody do you have any other questions before we wrap
1: up no well done a uh, cool project definitely very interesting It involves a couple of things uh, i hope you have a, a fire pun in your title for your your write-up but we'll can, see.
0: can you tell them what your title is? Because it was <laughs> I, I laughed at it.
2: So my thesis title was A Song of Mice and Fire.
3: <laughs> nice.
2: And Alrighty. then every chapter. So like the first chapter was Burn BB Burn for brilliant Bergdorf Rye. And then the second chapter was focused mostly on stress. So I think I called it stress eating. But I'm not positive. <laughs> yeah, i I will always do a pun for publication and presentations because why not
1: yeah you you are appreciated here
0: yeah. <laughs> cool well jesse thank you for coming on and talking and i shouldn't i should note you mentioned the stress chapter this is just part of your master's research there's a whole half of your dissertation we didn't talk about focused on stress and stress hormones and stuff which could be the topic of a whole other podcast. (laughs) Uh, So thank you for coming on today and talking about the prescribed fires and your work uh, with mice in that setting. I really appreciate it. And I, I'm sure the listeners will too. And, you know, congratulations on finishing great job there. And thanks again.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This is fun to talk about it again.
0: (laughs) If you want to, Oh, sorry. I was going to say, but wait, Where
3: can our listeners find you? And what's next for you?
2: Uh, Don't ask me that question. Okay,
3: we'll cut that out then.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, They can find me on Twitter at Pipetual Motion. And also on any place that you read papers about ticks and mice. As for what's next for me, we'll see. (laughs) Are you on the market? I am on the market, so you can email me as well if you have any, more, any questions at Evans at psu.edu. And if you have any offers, hit me up.
1: <laughs> You're a brave man. You're going to get a lot of tick inquiries after this. Uh, <laughs> you'll you'll uh, boost your extension part of your CV, perhaps. Oh, perfect. Uh, <laughs> uh, if you would like to find us on the web, we are at arthro-pod.blogspot.com. We are on all the requisite podcatchers, Stitcher. Until next month, they're closing Stitcher down. I don't know if any of you use Stitcher as your podcatcher of choice, but uh, SiriusXM is getting rid of it, apparently. Uh, We're also on uh, Apple Podcasts. We are on uh, Podcast Addict. Anyway, Spotify. Spotify. All you have to do is include the dash in between Arthro and Pod. Otherwise, you won't be able to find us. Leave us a rating and review if you've enjoyed the show or if you didn't enjoy it. We like that feedback, too. Uh, you can find us each on Twitter. I am at Bugman John. I am at Jody
3: Bugsby, UNL.
0: And I'm at MSCAWARLA36.
1: And we hope you will join us here in a couple of weeks for another tick centric episode. I believe we're going on kind of a tear for ticks here uh, over the next few episodes. So tune in for that. See you then.
0: It's time for our insect heroes to put away their nets and pheromone traps. Join us next time. Same bug time, same bug channel, as the Arthropod gang make the world safe from poor insect podcasts. Until then, keep on bugging.